Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, October 5th, 2020. On the show today, news, listener questions, and in our main segment, Jim continues with the history of Disney princesses in the parks. Let's get started by bringing in the man who points out that many of the musical numbers in Hamilton are not performed exactly as they occurred in history. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? I've spent far too much time watching Jonathan Groff as the King of England. That may be one of my favorite things in the history of musical theater. <laughs> I will send an entire battalion to kill your wife and family. You know, just sort of like, there's a happy moment in a show. Exactly. You're not going to put that on a t-shirt. Or maybe you are. I don't know. Maybe you are. So, yeah. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thank you all, Bandcamp subscribers. And thanks to new subscribers, J-Dubs. Taylor G double zero and JB two ten and longtime subscribers Corey eighteen ninety nine MJS eight oh five and Heather L Jim these are the folks who tend to the flora and fauna in the Pandoran Gardens over at Navi River Journey at Disney's Animal Kingdom and when I asked them what surprised them the most about the alien plant life there they said the number of interns we've lost to flesh eating I mean the wondrous <laughs> beauty of nature in all its forms. True story. <laughs> Is it wrong with me that the thing that impresses me the most out of that entire attraction are those giant leaves you pass under and you watch some sort of a frog thing jump from one Jumping on them. Leaf? Yeah. Yeah. I think that may be my favorite effect out of that entire attraction. It's mine too, I think. The fact that somebody came up with that. And think of how many boat rides Disney's done over oh, the yeah. years. Yeah. In the past. And for someone to come up with that, as an original effect for that ride was just, you know, it just shows you how creative those people are. And it does. All right, folks, let's, uh, let's do the news. And the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. All right, Jim, the big news for this week is the, uh, the layoffs. As we uh, heard last week, Disney announced that it'll be laying off 28,000 cast members. Disney says two-thirds of them are part-time cast members, but still. And it appears that there are layoffs in every business area, Imagineering, DVC, every area of the parks, college program, international CMs, and entertainment, including the Grand Floridian Orchestra, the Spirit of Aloha Performers. What have, uh, what have you heard about this, Jim? Just last night, I was able to confirm that just at Imagineering, there's over 400 people that are being let go, and that's out of... Just the Glendale campus, let alone the, the folks who are also being let go, you know, in Paris and, and at Walt Disney World and the like. Yeah. I mean, Disney had these, most of these employees furloughed. They were paying health insurance for them. And I think this is Disney saying that they don't expect business to come back in large numbers anytime soon. So basically, I think what, what we are seeing now is what they're expecting, at least for the next few months. The timing of the announcement was the end of... Uh, like in the very last days of Disney's fiscal 2020. So the fiscal year for Disney starts October 1. So that's their, they're in fiscal 2021. I'm sure that that's uh, the timing of that announcement wasn't a coincidence. No. They wanted to take whatever hit financially they did in 2029, 2021. And then put it in the review. Yeah, not great. It, there's really not a whole lot else to say on this. I mean, it's just, it's just not good news. No, it isn't. But it's, it's kind of the hard reality of, the world we live in right at this moment. And, you know, we can only hope for better times in 2021 and beyond. Um, 
but there's there's so much that needs to change before we can see anything approaching a comeback. Yeah. I mean, when you're talking about tourism, I think the thing that everybody's relying on is a widely available vaccine that's effective. Mm-hmm. And that's probably not going to be widely distributed until you know beginning next year. By the way, did you see that uh, the Center for Disease Control really, really, really wanted to say no cruising until February 2021? Ooh, no, and then I they did didn't. So, yeah. Um, so the um, so the the wording came out and said no cruising through the end of October, mm-hmm. which is the end of this month. But they apparently the internal discussion was they wanted to come out and say I guess it was another hundred days. Mm-hmm. Until February 2021, but then they uh, that didn't make it past the review process. And again, with cruising, I mean, you're t- tight quarters, but still, I mean, I think I have two minds on this. One, we, we can all acknowledge the risks. Number two, mm-hmm. Disney's done a pretty decent job of keeping people relatively safe in the parks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. cruising is a different a different animal. But I mean, if if, if anybody's going to get it right, it's going to be Disney. So. Yeah, one would hope. Also, the hard reality of when you're cruising between where your port cities are versus you know where you're headed. Yeah, I don't think I don't think anyone's getting off a cruise ship. I mean, you're just you're you're not right. It's a floating hotel at that point. There we go. There are rel- relatively few countries that are going to let you uh, let you in mm-hmm. anyway. All right, we'll have more to say on this uh, later on, Jim. I do want to point out in other news, Disney filed two patents this week. Mm-hmm. Both of them related to daylight visible holographic displays, which tells me they're still working on things for the Star Wars hotel. The daytime holographic displays will also factor into the Doctor Strange experience that you will get at the Avengers campus. Okay. There's concept art out there of the cast member who's playing Doctor Strange showing you the proper hand movements to make the force shield that he creates. And the thing is, you'll be standing with him and you'll make the same gestures and out directly in front of you you'll see the very same energy shield form. Oh, that'll be a neat effect. It will be a neat effect, but trust me, holograms that are easy to see in daytime are definitely a part of the Star Wars hotel. And you did see the blueprint that leaked, right? I I need some sort of internal confirmation before I mention it. Okay, okay. Yeah. One of us is far more professional than the other folks. I'm just (laughs) (laughs) Just, I need, asking around, right? You gotta, we'll see. I did notice that there were, uh, uh, in the blueprints, there were uh, standard cabins and first-class cabins, which you would There expect. we go. Okay. All right, Jim, let's do some uh, some listener questions. And this one's uh, related to the news. This is from Avon. Is there serious worry to be had about the financial viability or long-term health of the Walt Disney World Resort? Also, can you see an orchestra returning to the Grand Floridian ever in the next five years or in the next 10 years? So, Jim, first question. Financial viability or long-term health of the Walt Disney World Resort? You've got a lot of hard goods. You know, yeah. you've got resorts, you've got theme parks, you have millions upon millions of people who have very happy memories of having gone there. I mean, I think we are definitely in a trough and tourism in all its forms is facing huge challenges right now. But Disney World Resort is a known quantity and that once we're all confident about traveling, you know, whether it's getting in an airline or chugging down the eastern seaboard or that sort of thing. I have no doubt that the Walt Disney World Resort will return. Will it return at full speed immediately? No. That's the saddest part for me about the layoffs at Imagineering. That signals the effect of we're not going to be doing new stuff for quite a while. 
as we recover, but yeah. the stuff that's there is still solid, still good, and still has a diehard audience. So long term, I don't see this is a problem. Once, as you mentioned, once there's a vaccine, and once yeah, people yeah, are yeah. confident in traveling again, let the good times roll. In terms of viability, Disney has some debt, but not a lot. And I don't think they'd have any trouble raising capital if they if they needed to, because to your point, once activity starts resuming both in travel, when we talk about movie theaters and whatnot, they're probably the most valuable media brand in the world, right? Oh, I mean, so, so yeah. if they can't get capital to stay afloat, then capitalism as we know it is is, is not working. So uh, I'm not I'm not saying it, it's actually working great right now, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the economy would be seized if Disney can't get access to debt markets. That would just be that'd be no. silly. Yeah. Um, do you see a, an orchestra returning to the Grand Floridian ever in the next five years? Or the next 10 years? I don't know how many of you know the story of what happened with Disneyland's band, how as far back as 55 or they were, they had Mr. Vesey and his group of musicians. And that performing troupe at Disneyland has grown, has shrunk, expanded again. I think it's quite possible that once we get on the other side of the vaccine and people feeling safe to travel and that sort of thing, You'll see the niceties like live musicians playing at the Grand Floridian. Remember, for a lot of the time, you'd go in and there'd just be a guy playing the grand piano on the ground floor in the Grand Flow. I think it's quite possible that once we get on the other side of this, you'll start by seeing a trio. That you know, the notion is when you have these monorail hotels that you want yeah. to play up as deluxe resorts. You have to have things that tell you that it's deluxe and, and live music is one of those things. I agree. I think uh, part of the concern right now with uh, from Disney has got to be that we don't want people from all over the country standing together in a lobby listening to a band, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's not going to happen for at least six months. No, I agree. The The other thing, though, is, I mean, the, the Grand Floridian Orchestra is a good orchestra. I enjoyed my time listening to them, but... Mm-hmm. I sort of feel the same way about them that I feel about my favorite band in the studios, Mulch, Sweat, and Shears, right? They, they ran for, what, 10 or 12 years yep. in the studios. And, you know, in talking to the band, I think, you know, one of them said, if you had told us 10 years ago that we were going to have this decade-long run mm-hmm. where we got to meet all these people and perform all these shows, and then one day it was just going to end, we would have all taken that deal, mm-hmm. right? Same thing with the Grand Floridian Orchestra, right? They've been there for 30 years. And if you would ask them in 1990, mm-hmm. you know, we'll give you a 30-year run and then one day it's going to end all of a sudden. Will you take the job? I think all of them would have said yes. That's an interesting point, yeah. I'm sad to see them go, but let's also remember they had a great run, right? Mm-hmm. The Sort of the other thing that I've been kicking around mm-hmm. is, is this. I've been listening to a lot of music from Main Street, mm-hmm. USA. Every morning when I go out for my walk, I listen to subsonicradio.com and they've got a special channel just for Main Street USA. And the thing that I sort of, I'm kicking around this idea. And by the way, I could be completely wrong here, right? So Mm -hmm. I could be incredibly wrong, but here's what I'm, here's where I'm thinking on this. The music of Main Street USA, the music of the Grand Floridian Orchestra, the music of Yeehaw Bob seems awfully white to me, right? Not a very diverse set of musical things there. This might be a time for Disney to introduce some diversity in their musical programs. Like it wouldn't kill me one day to walk into the Magic Kingdom and walk down, you know, Black Main Street, USA. I think that would be fabulous. I I got to talk with John Hench about this once. 
And he was talking about the thing about the Disney theme parks is, you know, again, you're, you're staying there on Main Street and it's like it's surrounded by wood and paint and steel and glass and, you know, people in period costume. But it's so fragile that, you know, if you walked in and they were playing Three Dog Night. <laughs> Yeah, that would be wrong. Yeah, yeah, and it but, just it, that's a thing. It's just sort of like it's like okay, I, you know, I I could t- totally get on board with that. So, are we period correct African American music from the turn of the twentieth century? Yeah, I'm down with that. I mean, yeah, okay. and I'm sure there's there's some right. I, 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 there's got to be some some musicians represented there, but so maybe it's maybe it's just the music I was listening to on Subsonic. Right, the lyrics to me seemed really sort of not representative of all the music that was happening in the early part of the 20th century. You're not going to find a bigger Fats Waller fan on the planet. And if I came through the gate and heard your feet's too big, I would be a very happy man. Right. Yeah. Or ain't misbehaving or something like that. I think, yeah, I mean, if Glenn, you're not wrong that this could be a real opportunity. Yeah. So I think, you know, that, that, that would be a, a chance there. I mean, I know like on main street, they play like Scott Joplin and stuff like that. But, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just, yeah, I think it's a chance. Anyway, like I said, I, I think the musicians they had mm. were very good. Mm. I mean, again, and I love mean, the mainstream music, but this is a chance to throw some diversity in there. And I think that's a. Uh, remember, we talked uh, last week on last week's show about uh, inclusion as uh, one mm. of uh, Disney's new five keys. Mm-hmm. This could be one of those chances. So let's do it. Uh, next question was from uh, our next reader email was from Maven, who says, mm-hmm. uh, "I've really been enjoying your discussion about the history of the Disney princesses." The conversation on last week's show about uh, Disney's slow embrace of the princesses as a viable revenue stream got me thinking. I have to think that a big uh, part of the problem here was a gender bias that favored male audiences over female. This has certainly been a longstanding issue in other forms of entertainment and still holds true in many areas of popular culture. Even today, I'm hard-pressed to come up with a single attraction at Universal that features a female lead character. Are there any? Hmm. All right, we'll have to think about that. That... Yeah. That, well, it's not it's not obviously not true because I can't think of any off the top of my head. Okay. Um, anyway, so Maven says, in the past few years, Disney's definitely done a better job balancing the mix of male versus female-driven story in the parks. But I can't help wondering if the main driver for this is the much belated realization that there's a lot of money to be made by appealing to the other 50% of their guests. Thanks for telling the story and for bringing the parks to me every week. I look forward to every Schmurz Day when I have a new Disney dish in my playlist. Yeah, I mean, nothing will... Nothing will get companies to embrace diversity like finding a market in it, Jim. That's what yeah. I'm. That's what I'm going with. <laughs> okay. Got to remember when Disneyland was getting up out of the ground was when the tidal wave of Davy Crockett money was happening. So, oh yeah, that's how we ended up with Frontierland, right? I mean, that's yeah. one of the reasons Frontierland was as big as it was at the original Disneyland. It's like, ooh, there's money oh, to yeah. be had. It's, it's substantial there, yeah. Yeah, but going forward, it's been kind of interesting to watch them. Now that the princesses are as huge as they are, I was just reading, for example, Andrew Mooney. There were so many things that they tried. They tried the Disney Heroes line, where it was Peter Pan and Hercules and and the like, and then they had the Young Knights of the Round Table, where it was. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. you can try. You can yeah. try. <laughs> for effort, kids. Swing and a miss. <laughs> That's all right. By the way, he pointed out that Universal doesn't have a, a ride that necessarily stars a female character. I'm going through the list. I, there, there are none. Blue, the Raptor, is a girl. And they just last week announced that the, the Velocicoaster is happening. And there's also a Trolls thing making its way, or there was. 
until everything got stalled, and that was going to be Jim, do, do, you need, do you need to do you need some ointment before you do the stretching? I, I, uh, I I'm a little worried you're going to pull something here. <laughs> I'm trying, Len. I'm trying. Okay. <laughs> It's a good point. Maybe a great point. I would. Uh, so our friends from Universal Orlando are listening. Mm. FYI. All right. Next email is from Brent, who says regarding Mulan. Remember last week we had talked mm. about the low amount of money that Disney made from a premium video on demand for mm. live action Mulan. Uh, so Brent writes. Uh, I think the other factor is, in its success or lack thereof is the PG thirteen rating. We carefully considered purchasing it to watch with our eight-year-old twins. When we read a few parents' guides, most clearly said that it was a strong PG-13 due to violence, and then we decided that we would wait for December when it's free, since it would just be the two of us, my wife and I, watching it. Also, your comment about the difficulty in explaining your profession to a future spouse while at Applebee's, the fact that you're at Applebee's might have more to do with your success or failure in dating than your theme park profession. Oh, come wow, on. Brent. Wow, <laughs> dude. A little harsh there. What's wrong with an Applebee's man? There's sometimes sometimes you just wanna, you know. So true story. I think it was was it Applebee's mm-hmm. that a couple of years ago did like an endless appetizers promotion and I took Hannah, my daughter, there. Mm-hmm. And it was like the greatest day of her life <laughs> to that point. <laughs> it was <laughs> the wait waitress sat mm-hmm. down this pile of cheese sticks and mm-hmm. potato skins in front of her. And it was like Christmas in, I think it was like September or whatever. Like mm-hmm. the, the child was literally as happy as I've ever seen her. It was kind of amazing. I do want to say, I think it was Esquire, and I forget the writer who did an entire piece where he arrived at an Applebee's at 11. Yes, I remember. Open. I read this. It, yes. it tried to eat. And- Just nothing but appetizers. and <laughs> Just... You know, it was uh, Super Size Me, the 24 Hours right. edition. You know, just. It would, they, he made it, I can't remember if it was a man or a woman who wrote it, but they made it through like four orders of cheese sticks. Yeah. And yeah. then was like, and then the, then it sort of sort of like set in on them of what the, the enormity of what they had to do. Yes, yes. Oh, so, yeah. It was a great article. I, I remember it. Yeah, was, I remember it reading. was. Yeah. Gradually and very bleak writing. All right. Uh, next question uh, from Dave. On a previous show, you described a proposed Disneyland parade Hmm. that involved a spaceship and aliens, but couldn't come up with a film franchise that fit into the park. Remember, this was the the question from Xavier on Disney parades that never happened, Mm -hmm. right? And so Dave writes, what about the Witch Mountain franchise? So there are three films in the Witch Mountain franchise, the 1975 Escape to Witch Mountain, which, by the way, my parents took me to see at a drive-in. Oh. The okay. 1978 return from Witch Mountain, and of course the 2009 completion of the trilogy, Race <laughs> to Witch Mountain, uh, with Dwayne the Rock Johnson, which I saw in theaters with my daughter. Okay, that by the way is worth it for the Dick Cook cameo. It was just about the time that Dick was wrapping up his run as the uh, head of uh, Walt Disney Studios. But if you remember, there's a train wreck in the middle of it and <laughs> both literal and figurative there <laughs> like we go and, and for about two seconds on screen you get to see the engineer and there in his full regalia is dick cook oh that's fantastic and he literally went out with a bang folks on the other hand building a parade around the witch mountain thing again len what do you remember from the the witch mountain movie that you saw uh so i've seen at least two of the three of them i remember Darkness, mountains, and a lot of frantic running. 
Okay. That's yeah. that's what I and Eddie Albert I think is in the first. There one. we go. He's dead now, right? Yes, he is, and, and I think this film may have killed him. <laughs> Or at least killed his career. Does the phrase flying Winnebago mean anything to you? That's right. This was the era of flying cars in Disney films with That's Herbie. Right. And That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I forgot about that. Okay, so Dave, wonderful suggestion. But when I think Witch Mountain, it kind of boils down to Eddie, Eddie Albert and a Winnebago. And after that, I got nothing. <laughs> Eddie Albert and a flying Winnebago. Yeah, you know... If I'm in Imagineering, which, by the way, has no more you know, employees, but if I'm if I'm one of the people left in Imagineering, yep. I'm pitching Eddie Albert and a flying Winnebago as a as a con. Isn't isn't basically this the uh, the pitch for one of the Harry Potter rides with a flying car? Like same thing, but just British. And on that seat, no, Len, you may be onto something here because one of the things that killed the flying car. Uh, was the fact that you only could get four people in at a time. That's why eventually we got uh, Escape from Gringotts. You got you know, the multi-train you know, thing going there. Yeah. But yeah. Winnebago, fly, larger. Yeah. Larger. You could put more people in it. Okay. If suddenly this is a viable idea. Dave, okay, we're going to give you credit for it. You know, if it shows up in the park, it's Dave's right. It, okay? It's Dave's idea. Yeah. All right. There we go. All right. Last email from uh, Ken who says, uh, I was listening to a recent Disney Dish podcast on my way to visit my daughter at Bowling Green State University in Ohio, where you talked about robots in the Star Wars Hotel. They have robots delivering food all over the Bowling Green campus and out into the neighborhoods near the school. It looks like they go a mile or so off campus to make deliveries. It wasn't busy when I was there. I think they have less than half the normal students on campus right now, but I was there on a Saturday morning, so not too many people around. And they don't seem to have too many problems with people or crossing streets and the crosswalks. And Ken sent in some video that he took of the little robots driving around. And yeah, it looks like it's it's got six wheels and it's driving around delivering food. They're walking about four miles an hour or they run at about four miles an hour, which is a little bit faster than, than most people walk. But yeah. Now somebody sent me video of one of these. Is this the same one that it, basically it looks like? A cooler on wheels? Well, yeah, it's kind of yeah. a, if SpongeBob had unnatural relations with a shopping cart. <laughs> You know, Jeff, the fact that I described it as a cooler on wheels and you said that. <laughs> it's, it's yellow and got eyes on the front. You know, it's just, I'm sorry. Okay. I look at it like that's very SpongeBob like. Okay, well. Man, just stay on your medication. That's what I'm okay. saying. All right. All right. <laughs> okay. Anyway, but the the robots exist and they're, uh, they're out and working. So that's, mm. uh, that's pretty fabulous. And I did uh, love the video. So thank you very much, Ken. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim continues with a discussion of the Disney princesses in the parks. We'll be right back. On the last episode, Jim and I talked about how Andrew Mooney had turned the Disney princesses into a full-blown franchise, launching uh, a new business line in 2001, and then by 2006, turning it into a $3 billion a year ongoing concern. So Jim, where do you want to pick up? That's an interesting moment because again, you had the Imagineers who, you know, okay, we waited and it's not a Beanie's Babies. It's not going to blow itself out. And certainly after they opened the first Bibbidi Boppity Boutique in World of Disney, it used to be downtown Disney, now Disney Springs. I had a friend in Imagineering reach out and said, okay, everything you said, true. However, um, he wanted to point out, for example, that at least when it came to Walt Disney World, there was a certain way the company handled new characters. That from the day that MGM opened in May of 89, when the company was introducing new characters, 
Street, they made their debut at the studio park. And then after, you know, a set number of years, if the, if these characters had shown they had legs and, and insert your own aerial joke here, they would then go to live happily ever after at the Magic Kingdom. So the, this example is how Boys of the Mermaid, which opened at MGM in January of 92, eventually led to Ariel's Grotto, which opened at the, the Magic Kingdom in the fall of 96. Uh, similarly, the, the live stage of Beauty and the Beast uh, led to Storytime with Belle. That debuted at uh, the Magic Kingdom in September of 99. And then the Royal Car- Caravan Parade that used to roll through uh, MGM, that led to the Magic Carpets of Agrabah, which opened in May of 2001. Now, mind you, sometimes it took a while to live happily ever after. Mermaid made it over to the kingdom fastest. It was four and a half years. Whereas Aladdin took nine and a half years. Wow. That's up and running by 2001. And in this same period of time, Disney is now kicking the tires for a new 3D movie that was supposed to debut in Hong Kong and then eventually go to the other parks around the world. And through various reasons, it wound up opening at uh, the Magic Kingdom first in 2003. Uh, this We're talking about Mickey's Filler Magic. As my imaginary friend pointed out, said, we're first year when we're watching this $300 billion new business line just burst out of the ground. It's like, woof. Okay. That actually impacted what we put into Mickey's PhilharMagic. I mean, if you think about it, the first musical number is Be Our Guest. The second number is Ariel, you know, swimming around with Donald and singing Part of Your World. And then the middle, uh, we get our fly over Agrabah at night, and we even have a moment where Jasmine personally interacts with Donald. But the other thing that, that's really fascinating about when they were working at Philomagic initially, the host of the attraction was supposed to be Tinkerbell. So uh, here's Imagineering literally taking the spreadsheet from Disney Princesses and Okay, we got Jasmine, we got Belle, we got Ariel, and we got Tinkerbell. And it was Michael Eisner himself who actually pulled Tinkerbell out of the show. You know, they showed him the work in progress. And he's like, look, this is cute, but it's not funny. It doesn't have a whole lot of energy. I mean, couldn't we get a more chaotic character in here like Donald? So how are they going to do Tinkerbell? I mean, Donald talks, but in a Donald Duck voice. Mm-hmm. Tinkerbell would have to basically pantomime. But you see that. Oh, hold on and pause. Let me just say, have you seen the first episode of the new season of the Great British Baking Show? I have not. One of the one of the contestants mm-hmm. lists their occupation as pantomime producer. <laughs> and I'm like, like I'm looking at the subtitles like did someone get the subtitle wrong on this? Like what what is pantomime oh. producer is the job title that I would not have come up with. See, now we have to get you over to the UK, though, because for the holidays over in the UK, they do these amazing seasonal pantomimes where they will do... Oh, really? Yeah, they'll do the story of Aladdin, or they'll do the, the story of Cinderella, but it's oh. it's these elaborately costumed, you know, beautifully produced, incredibly funny shows that are, oh. you know, they've done it too long. I mean, a pantomime over there means something very different from... The, the, oh, annoying, co- okay. the annoying mime in front of the public library. No, this is the- <laughs> exactly. Like- Get out of the box. Stop walking against the wind. It's like, no, do a British pantomime. Get a guy in here in a dress and hit him with a uh, slap. Well, thank you for that, Jim. I've learned something today. Go okay. ahead. But the interesting thing is that the, the, one of the reasons they were zeroing on Tinkerbell and that she communicated through pantomime was the fact that 
This attraction was posted a view in Hong Kong. And at Hong Kong, if you go to get on the Jungle Cruise, there were three boats parked there. And they could ask you, well, do you want the narration in Mandarin, Cantonese, or English? So you have to create three different spots to load boats to deal with the, the three different languages that come into that part. And so the thinking was, if we have a character that only commutes through pantomime, it's like, you know, one cue, just send them all into the theater. And so they were trying to express this to Mr. Eisner, to the effect of, well, no, if we were dealing with three different languages, and Michael sits him down, it's like, it's Donald Duck. Nobody understands what he's saying. You know, so we, right. why would we need to dub it? But, you know, the duck is clearly not speaking in Cantonese. So they get that attraction going with all the input from Disney Princesses. Uh, that's up and running by 2003. They're still watching it ramp up. They're still watching it make money. So the notion is in the mid-2000s, 20,000 Leagues has been closed since September of 94. So you have this giant piece of real estate with the, with the huge show building back there that could be made use of. And this is the most popular land at the most popular theme park that Disney has in Florida. So it's the manager's right. like, look, get a fantasy of it. let's do it. And the Imagineers are, okay, we got that request from Florida. We have all this data from Andrew Mooney on Disney Princesses. Let's go. September 2009, Jay Rizzullo stands on stage at the D23 Expo. And a lot of the stuff that Jay laid out that day is in that park today, and we love it. But hold on, let me, let me pause here and say, one of the great Jim Hill moments of all time was September 12th, 2009, because you had told me two years before that exactly what Jay Rizzullo was going to announce two years later. You had the new Fantasyland lineup nailed two years before it became public. I put it in the unofficial guide, I think, in 2008, which means I wrote it in 2007. This is, again, what makes me sad about 400 people leaving the Glendale campus. It's like some of my sources are going with them. <laughs> 410 sources of yours right out the door, Jim. <laughs> Jeez. But right out the bat, we've got things like uh, Be Our Guest or, or Gaston's Tavern. And, and again, yep. the gimme of the little, you know, Voyage of the Little Mermaid ride that was going to go here as well as DCA. But yep. then in the middle of the land, there was this giant show building that facing into New Fantasyland was the Tremaine Chateau. It's where the uh, Lady Tremaine and her two daughters, uh, Cinderella's ugly stepsisters, Anastasia and Drizella, live. And then on the other side of the building, facing into the New Fantasyland, we mm -hmm. got the Woodcutter's Cottage where the, the three good fairies, Flora, Fauna, and Merriweather, had been hiding away princess aurora for 16 years right if you got in the queue for the cinderella experience you made your way into the house and you eventually found yourself looking out into the backyard at the very moment that the fairy godmother gives cinderella her gown and then cinderella sees you inside comes inside and greets you in her gown and then explains well i'm about to leave for the ball and i'm a little nervous and does anybody here know anything about how to curtsy and it's like and, you know they pull a couple little girls out and they teach her how to curtsy and so and does anybody know how to waltz and they grab a few of the little boys and they teach cinderella how to waltz and she thanks them and then she steps out into the backyard and there is the pumpkin coach and she climbs in the coach and she rides off and you get that's right. what you got to experience so i'm actually looking at the 2009 concept art right now mm -hmm. and, and i see the uh, the manor house or the small castle and everything yep. mm -hmm. yeah the thing that jumps out here to mm -hmm. me is that it's a lot of character greetings 
shops and restaurants. And yeah. there are, other than Under the Sea, Voyage of the Little Mermaid, there are no rides. Yeah. You know, there's a there's a lot of water, though. So the um, there's a, uh, a lagoon or a lake or a moat that we would have crossed to get to the village, Beauty and the Beast Village. Mm-hmm. And the moat or the water around Under the Sea is much more substantial. Yep. Than what we ended up with here. You kind of nailed what eventually killed this version of the project. Same thing if we, we do the woodcutter thing. You, you're supposed to show up the day that Aurora has turned 16. And you come in and the, the three good fairies are you know doing all the birthday stuff we saw from the film. And you literally get invited to sit down at the kitchen table. And there's construction paper and crayons and safety scissors. And you can make a birthday card for Briar Rose, which you then get to give her when she walks into the cottage. And then I still don't understand this transition point, but at one point the fairies kind of go, well, thank you for coming. And now if you could please exit, we have to have a really kind of an unfortunate conversation with Briar Rose to reveal she's actually a princess and she has to give up Prince Charming and or Prince Philip and all that. And it's just sort of like, wow, well, that, that's a happy moment to send somebody into a gift shop on. <laughs> but Mooney had also prepped. In fact, this was just getting out of the ground at the same time these plans are being nailed. The Disney Fairies franchise, which was supposed right. to be a transition point for girls who were aging up out of Princess. So they had a mini land within a land. So you could go to, for example, the Pixie Dust Tree, which is the central icon of Neverland, at least as far as Disney Fairies are concerned. Where was this in the like, where, if I'm in the Magic Kingdom right now, where was this going to be? These pieces started to move around. Barnstormer was always going to stay right where it was, but directly across the street from Barnstormer is where Pixie Hollow was going to be built. Now, oh, that's what this, uh, these like, this, it looks like giant plants, pink, with yep. pink flowers over where the Pete's Silly Circus or Pete's yep. Silly Sideshow side and the Big Top. Yeah, in fact, well, remember, the, the, Ooh, the initial plan was Pete's Silly Sideshow and the circus tent store set up with the character meet and greets that's there today that the legacy from mickey's toontown fair uh that was going to be torn down that was actually where dumbo was originally supposed to go right okay so i see the uh i see in this concept art that that's where the the fairy that area is where the fairies were gonna yeah yeah the fairies were basically going to sit between barnstormer and uh, as you walk past the aerial meet and greet you go straight into pixie hollow but There was a flat ride that was going to circle around the base of the tree that was much the same way as in a bug's land in California, that as you anti-Pixie Hollow, you then became Pixie size. So you were going to be able to ride around in all of these found objects that Tink had found and had made into ride vehicles. And then there was going to be a... Oh, yeah, you're right. I see it's it's an oval shape, uh, the border of this particular thing. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. So anyway, uh, also has a meet and greet component. You you could go into a giant size lantern similar to the one that Captain Hook captured uh, in the original Peter Pan and get your photo and do a meet and greet with a character. It's a lot of meet and greets. It's a lot of extended interactive experiences. Frankly, there's there's not a lot there for boys. No, That's there the isn't. Thing, right? There isn't. And uh, Rizzullo had been a good soldier. He had... You know, he had done what the Magic Kingdom people had asked of him, and he had also taken all of the info that that uh, Andrew Mooney had given him and cobbled together this land that, you know, that worked the Venn diagram. But remember, he announces it's September 2009. In November of 2009, we, we get that very strange announcement from Bob Iger where he's going to have 
Thomas Staggs, who's the at that point the CFO of the Walt Disney Company, Jay Rizzolo, who again is chairman of Disney Parks Resort, they're going to swap jobs because Bob hadn't quite decided who he was going to get as his second in command, and he felt that you know in both cases Jay needed more park or Jay needed more financial experience. Where Tom, if he was going to be taken seriously for the second in command position, need you know as a CFO needed more time in the parks. Tom Staggs is now the, the chairman of Disney Parks starting in early 2010. He's doing the exact same thing you're doing, Len. He's looking at it. He's got two small boys at home. And he shows them the plans. And it's like, Dad, that's that's for girls. That's all for girls. And he's also troubled by the fact that, you know, he Center of the Land has two uh, two attractions that key off of IPs that, it would, you know, one film was released in 1950 and the other uh-huh. one was released in 59. And Tom's looking over his shoulder and it's like, didn't we just release Princess and the Frog like in November of last year? It's our first African-American princess. Shouldn't she have representation in the parks? Aren't we going to maybe get hammered if we don't have some way to bring her in? Valid point. Yeah. But at the same time, here's Tom starting to talk with folks at Imagineering about his concerns and is like, Mr. Staggs, the, the bulldozers are moving. They've already knocked down the 20,000 leagues show building. We've already shut down Ariel's Grotto. We've already pulled, pulled down Pooh's Playful Spot. I mean, this project's on the move. You really wanted to change the plan now? What he said and how he did it is what we'll talk about on the next Disney dish. And I swear to God, Len, it's the final, final, final installment. Well, so I didn't I didn't realize we were going to tie this into uh, the new Fantasyland stuff, but that's uh, that's super interesting because it, it does explain how, why we got what we got. Yeah, yeah. But again, we'll get to that on the next show. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. We will find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including in-park audio and a special series on the Disneyland Circus. You can find more of Jim at JimHillMedia.com and more of me, Len, at TouringPlans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who's judging the two-crusted blueberry pie contest at this year's Maine Harvest Festival, Sunday, November 22nd, from noon to 3 p.m. at the Clock Tower Hallway Meeting Rooms in beautiful downtown Bangor, Maine. While Aaron's doing that, please go onto iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.